All right. You all are just sitting there in wild anticipation. I can tell. You're going, what, what might we be studying today? Well, <clears throat> yes, we're going to press on. What if, of course, what else would we do? And uh, I believe uh, that we have come, uh, let me verify this, we've come to factors in the rise of the Reformation. Am I correct about that? Is that correct? Um, no. No, it's the pre, pre-Reformation. No, we're not even there. Sorry. Goodness gracious. See, I, I use these same notes at other times, and I lose... We haven't... Oh, goodness. Uh, we did the Crusades last. Yes. So we're on doctrinal development, right? Yes, but you said next time... Yes. Uh, transubstantiation and sacrifice of the Mass. Yep, yep. Doctrinal development. Okay. Yeah, we still got a ways to go. Sorry. <laughs> I use these notes more than once. So, um, I, 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 yes? A quick question, maybe a little controversial. How are we as uh, Christians, especially like, legit like, Protestant Christians, to go to crusade? Because on the one hand, like, we know like, there was a lot of like, atrocities on both sides, and we know it was mostly economic-related. On the other hand, uh, I'm pretty darn glad that... Um, Muslims didn't conquer Europe, and, uh, and it protected Europe for Christendom, which and for the Reformation. I don't know, it, it seems like a pretty tricky question to... Well, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, the Reformers uh, would have seen those actions... Uh, well. It really comes back to sacralism, uh, state church, the concept of Christendom. Uh, We even sing a hymn once in a while uh, that struck me after I did uh, my talk on the two Luthers. Uh, Luther, Martin, oh, way too many of them. Uh, 165, 166, sounds familiar. Uh, once in a while we will sing uh, nope that's not it 165 166 uh, 207 there's a uh, there's a hymn by Luther that uh, specifically nope there's only so many of them uh, 461 it'll be you want to bet it's the last one I look at it's not 461. So I went for the later ones, and uh, of course, we know what 81 is, so it must be 91. It's a short one. Yeah, yeah, 91. Uh, yeah, the second one, Lord Jesus Christ, thy power make known, for thou art Lord of lords alone. Defend thy Christendom that we may evermore sing praise to thee. Um, and, you know, I... I know what that meant to uh, to Luther, and uh, yet, as you know, Baptists don't have a a sacralist history. Uh, the last, I mean, the group that has the the longest and the latest martyrology in Europe are Baptists, and mainly at the hands not of Rome, but of Protestants of state. 
Church Protestants all the way into the early 1800s. And so we are in, in, a, in a sort of a no-man's land uh, where we recognize that placing theology and the nature of the gospel and things like that in the hands of um, the magistrate is, uh, has had really, really bad results in the past. At the same time, you know, as you say, you know, it's, Europe would have been a very different place had it been conquered by the Muslims. Well, that's obviously true as well. But were the Crusades actually relevant to that? Uh, some would argue that given that one of the Crusades hung a left and sacked Constantinople, it actually assisted in the eventual fall of Constantinople and hence the pressure that was felt against Vienna and places like that at a later point in time. You know, it's sort of like, what if Lee had had his cavalry at Gettysburg? You know, uh, what, what would happen if there had been uh, a United States and a Confederate United States when World War I started? You know, there's, there's all sorts of ways of speculating what might have happened or, or everything else, and there's, there's really no way for us to know those things. Just theologically, the motivation, uh, the, the granting of indulgences, the, the fact that to this day the cross is a, a, a sign of idolatry or, or military conquest in the Muslim world has to be overcome. I can't, I can't see the positive aspect. God, God chose to do it that way, and it had an impact upon Europe in the sense of, you know, rise of the middle class and the economics and, you know, all those things you know about. But, you know, just looking at it from a, a biblical perspective, uh, you know, calling for people to ride off and leave their families to, uh, to make it possible to do pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I can't see how that's, you know... A positive thing, and uh, so it, the interesting thing is, to my knowledge, uh, the Muslims viewed it purely as politics and military until just the past couple of decades. Then it's become useful to you know religious persecution, blah blah blah, in the West. But up till then, it was like, hey, you fought us, we fought you, eh, you know, no big deal. That's just sort of how things are supposed to be. And uh, so they didn't really view, them, view it the way that, uh, uh, that it's being viewed today. So at least that's my understanding of it. So, yeah, it's something, definitely something to think through. I, I am a little, I, I do get a little creeped out when, when there are certain Christian writers, or at least sort of Christian writers, who sort of go, rah, rah, crusades, you know. And I'm like, um, oh, okay, uh, you know. All right, well, anyway. So, something to think about, definitely. Uh, it's a mixed bag. All right, doctrinal development. Very important here. Um, uh, purgatory and the treasury of merit. We had, uh, uh, we had already talked about this, didn't we? Yes. And so, we talked about uh, the value of relics, and so the next one was the sacrifice of the Mass, I believe. Real quick question, if you don't mind. How did the Catholic Church claim that they actually kept track of the treasury of merit? It's the power of the keys. It's a supernatural thing. It's not like there's a book someplace. With so basically a, they claimed that as long as they said there was merit there to dispense, there it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's no, account, there's no accounting system. There's no accounting system. 
I mean, you would think there almost could be, but there, there isn't. So, All right, the sacrifice of the Mass. Now, uh, if, you, if you think back to the early church period, we talked about the Missa, uh, which was the dismissal. You can even hear in our English term derived from Latin going back to that time period. Uh, the dismissal of those who were not baptized from the worship service in the early church. So when you dismissed them, it was time for the Mass. Um, that dismissal and then the Lord's Supper afterwards developed into what eventually becomes known as, as the Mass. And during the Middle Ages, the Mass took over the role of preaching in, in, uh, in the church. Um, as literacy declined, as knowledge of Scripture declined, um, the uh, central act of worship became uh, the Supper and all the symbolism that was connected uh, to the Supper, in essence. And uh, I'm not at all exaggerating uh, to state that uh, even to this day in... Uh, modern Roman Catholic uh, teaching, uh, the, it, it, the Roman Catholic authors themselves will tell you um, that the central act of worship uh, within Roman Catholicism is the Mass. And so it, it's, you know, they will say, oh, well, there's scripture readings as part of the Mass. Well, minimally. Uh, the idea of the exegesis explication of, of the text of scripture as central act of worship. That's really one of the main differences between Reformed Protestants and Roman Catholics. I'm not sure it's really the case any longer with many other Protestants. But, uh, and, and that is, in, in one, you have uh, the ceremony. In other, you have the communication, of, communication and application of divine truths. Um, there's a real difference between the two. And uh, so, anyway, uh, with that decline in literacy in the Middle Ages, the Mass uh, took over for preaching. Um, there were many miracles associated with the host, primarily after um, the turn of the millennium. Uh, and we'll explain why that is in, in just a moment. But some of the, there's, there's a couple... He, there are two, two names that you need to know if you want to understand something about the development of uh, the theology during the uh, Middle Ages and middle, middle period of time. Pascasius Radbertus. Pascasius Radbertus. And in my mind, there's always a connection between Radbertus uh, and uh, another fellow by the name of Ratramnus. And I don't have Ratramnus's first name, or if he had. Ratramnus. Radbertus or Ratramnus? That's just uh, stuck, with, stuck with me in my thinking, anyways. Um, Radbertus, in either 818 or 831, we're not exactly sure which, developed the idea of the body being in the host, that is a change in substance of the host, in his work, De Corpore et Sanguini Damini. 
Uh, Till this time, the real presence of Christ had indeed been believed, but the specifics of how this uh, occurred was not really discussed. And in the early church, uh, it's it's clear that when you had uh, the host, if you're if uh, if you're familiar with with the mass, many of you, if you're raised the Baptist, it's just a mystery to you, but. Um, you have uh, the, the priest uh, lifts up this wafer, the host, and in the old Latin would say, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. Uh, and then Vatican II allowed vernacular language masses, and there are still Roman Catholics that are upset about that. Um, and there is this mysterious, uh, miraculous change in the substance, not the accident. Substance, it's an Aristotelian distinction between something it something's substance is what makes it what it is. Its accidents is what makes it appear to be what it is. And they're two different things. So the substance is changed in the body, soul, blood, and divinity of Jesus. The accidents remain the same, so it still looks like, tastes like, feels like a piece of bread, a cracker. Um, but it's not anymore. Its substance has been changed, which changes what's actually going on. And uh, Aristotle is starting to be studied again uh, toward the end of the first millennium. And so these category issues start coming into, into play. Now you can tell that the early church didn't have any of this because though they had the mass and the, the consecration of hosts and things like that, they would take them to sick people who, for example, couldn't come to church. Um, now what happens with those hosts today in Roman Catholicism? They are treated like the body and blood of God. And so that's why when you go into a church, uh, you genuflect. Uh, if you look very carefully, there will always be this uh, tabernacle or monstrance, sometimes in the center, sometimes over in the corner, uh, where there are consecrated hosts that are reserved there. And uh, that's the physical presence of God in the church. And that's what you're bowing toward, worshiping. You're allowed to worship that because that's literally God. And in Roman Catholic countries, there will be processions. You almost never see that here, but you see it down in Mexico, uh, where the, pro, the, the priest will put one of these consecrated hosts into, into this container, a pick saborium, whatever, uh, different words for it, and they will parade it through the streets, and everyone will bow down and, uh, because God's coming by. And uh, the fact is, in the early church, uh, once those hosts were distributed to the sick, they did not, they didn't do anything with, if, if anything was left, well, eat them, give them to somebody else, it's, it's no big deal, because they didn't have this idea of some type of wholesale change of the substance and this, all that literal physicality that would come in later centuries. Um, they certainly believed it was important and that Christ was present with his people in a spiritual sense, but this physical stuff took, uh, took a while uh, to, uh, to develop. And so uh, Radbertus uh, didn't use the term, uh, but eventually the, the term transubstantiation began to be uh, utilized. And Radbertus was a monk at a place called Corby, C-O-R-B-I-E. Um, Ratramnus, uh, who died in 868, contradicted Radbertus in a work titled De Corpore et Sanguini Domini Liber, 
uh, though he was also at Corby and was under Radbertus's authority. So Radbertus was Radtramnus's senior uh, in the, amongst the monks, but he uh, contradicted uh, Radbertus's view. He argued the supper is a memorial, a symbol, and that no change took place. So we could call him Rad, Radtramnus the Baptist if we wanted to, um, though he would probably not appreciate that. Um, Radbertus's position was finally codified at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And so that, I think that's a date I've mentioned to you before. 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council. And when, when the inevitable question is asked of me, as it always is, well, when did Roman Catholicism start? And, you know, people try to say, well, it was with Constantine, or, well, it took place here. It was Gregory the Great. Um, I think one of the most convenient uh, dates that I can offer someone uh, to where you could sort of identify, I mean, you've, you've got the huge increase in the authority of the papacy and everything else. Fourth Lateran Council sounds good. You, you, need, you need to have the mass, and you need to have transubstantiation, I think, to have Roman Catholicism. Even though purgatory is not going to take its final form until 1414 14, 14 or so. Um, so it's still a matter of development. And, and uh, I've, I've already warned us many times of all those books that have the list of dates. And this started here and this started All this, I mean, 1215, that's almost 400 years after Radbertus before you have a a uh, dogmatic uh, definition of these particular, these particular things. So Radbertus and Radtramnus uh, sort of cast a light on uh, this point of development, and even in the mid-9th century, there is still disagreement. There's, you know, when you, when you hear uh, Roman Catholics and others, uh, oh, you know, Universal faith of the church, universal faith of the church. I just, I just want to go, what books are you reading, son? Uh, there there are, are very few things you can identify as being absolutely universal. Uh, I think monotheism is about as close as you can come on, on some of those things. So anyway, also, you might ask the question, well, whatever happened with that old, uh, that old guy named Augustine and his doctrine of predestination? Because we know... Uh, we know that that doctrine is not exactly something that the the lost man really likes or is going to be grabbing hold of and 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 promoting. And uh, so this time period actually gives us a little snapshot about that as well, because after the days of Augustine, about. Hundred years after his death, you have uh, the Council of Orange, and at the Council of Orange, you 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 get, you know, yes, Augustine was right about many of these things, but you get some compromises that lead to the utilization of the term semi-Pelagianism by later historians looking back. Um, once Augustine was gone, his high strong view of the sovereignty of God and the decree of God 
That just doesn't fit with a lot of people. People don't. That goes against man's natural tendencies toward wanting to be able to push himself into the center of things and uh, be in control of things. And and so you you get at the Council of Orange an affirmation of the general truths of what Augustine said, but you get enough compromise to allow man to sort of sneak back in there. And so you get what we would call semi-Pelagianism, which as a broad term, is, is what you have in the vast majority of evangelicalism today as well. Uh, and that is a synergistic uh, system that will give varying levels of lip service to the concept of God's sovereignty, decrees, elections, so on and so forth, but uh, its, its deepest desire is to make sure that Whoever is in final control, it's man. God can do 99.9% of it, but you've got to give that 1% control to man so that everything works out. Um, one of the interesting names, and I think this would be a great name for uh, a kid, a dog, maybe not a kid and a dog at the same time, but uh, I just think it's one of the best I think this is one of the best church history names. So keep this in mind. Church history names right here. Keep this, keep this in mind. Um, then that rock, Gottschalk. Gottschalk. Oops, it's, it's got, there's two T's there. Gottschalk. Um, I, I, that, that name just, I don't know, just, that would make a good, that would make a good soccer team. I mean, just, it just, it just, it just rocks. It really does. Um, Gottschalk, 804 to 869. 869. Um, Gottschalk was a big fan of Augustine. Who else? And he felt the church should follow more close to the teachings of Augustine over against Council of Orange and semi-Pelagianism that had become popular in the time period after him. Uh, he found great solace and delight in the concept of God's absolute sovereignty and the doctrine of predestination. Uh, he saw that Augustine had taught double predestination, a strong view, uh, even though that doesn't require you to believe in what's called equal ultimacy. We've talked about that before, but the idea that that um, when you talk about double predestination, most people assume what you mean is God predestines some to heaven and predestines some to hell, and it's, just, it's the identical thing. The extension of divine power to save a rebel sinner and bring them to heaven is very different than the natural application of God's justice, which brings a person uh, into condemnation. Uh, it's divine power that saves. It does not require divine power in the same context or even on the same level. Uh, to bring condemnation. So, but there are some people that just want to, well, many people who just want to say, that's just flip side of the same thing. That's way too simplistic a, a, a perspective. Anyway, uh, so he saw that Augustine had taught double predestination. Well, it wasn't popular back then either. <laughs> and so he was, uh, he was condemned for his views. Now you might say, oh, what, he... he uh, he didn't get enough likes on Facebook. He started getting negative comments on Facebook, you know, stuff like that. No, he was condemned. Um, 
And then he was scourged. And then he was condemned to lifelong imprisonment. <laughs> so, so a little bit of a different context uh, than, than we have today. Um, I, I have folks on Facebook that would like to see me scourged and, and <laughs> given lifelong imprisonment as well. But thankfully, they're not, uh, they're not in charge uh, yet. And so we're, we're good. Um, and so what's interesting is guess who came to Gottschalk's aid, at least in the sense of, uh, in a written form, defending his perspectives? Retramnus. Retramnus. Very good. Uh, Retramnus uh, came to Gottschalk's aid. Sort of looking at whether you're surfing the web there. And oh, come on. Here I thought, here I thought you had gone, hey, I bet you... Nah. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to guess that much. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I need a little bit more. Aha, uh-huh. uh-huh. So, so while I'm sitting here talking, you're actually reading Wikipedia about Gottschalk. I was looking at that. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. The, uh, the connection between Travis and how he defended uh, Gottschalk. Okay. Well. I think we're going to have to. I think we're going to have to put uh, a Wi-Fi blocker in here or something like that, so that. Uh, I don't allow uh, laptops or phones in my class. So. There, 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 and is that why? Uh, you don't. You don't want. You don't want your students uh, actually correcting you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, doctor, that's not what it says on Wikipedia. You know. It's, it's like, well, that's what you get for using Wikipedia. You fail. Get out of here. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> So Retramnus came to Gottschalk's aid writing a work called, do you want to, you want to go with the Latin on this one? Uh, no, you can go ahead. <laughs> I, I can't read it. I got it here. De predestination dei, the predestination of God, though in reality he wasn't as dedicated to double predestination as Gottschalk was. So he wasn't quite as fervent as Gottschalk, but um, he, uh, he did come to his, uh, his aid, though I do not... Does, does the article say whether uh, Gottschalk received any uh, uh, amelioration for, of his sentence, or did, uh, does it just simply... doesn't say that. Either. Yeah, yeah, I don't have anything about that either, so I don't, I don't think he got out. <laughs> um, so just, you know, as, as you may have opportunity of having discussion with people online about your beliefs, be thankful that you live in the early 21st century. Uh, where you can have that discussion without life imprisonment <laughs> uh, and scourging uh, as, as a result um, because that's what happened back then. Though we may be heading back that direction, I just don't think it would be uh, fellow Christians that would be doing that. Though, I, like I said, I, just this morning I was, uh, I was encountering one that would, I'm sure, love to do, have all that done to me. Anyway... Um, so there you have Gottschalk. So I'm, I'm fully expecting uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future to hear that uh, someone who gets a new kitty or doggy or something uh, named, named that cat or dog uh, minimally. Uh, Gottschalk, maybe a Retramnus. I think Retramnus would be really cool uh, as well. Uh, and uh, who knows, maybe some kids someday will get uh, at least a middle name of, uh, of Gottschalk. I actually ran into somebody once that did have like a middle name of Gottschalk. I said... So which parent is the church history person? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we can go from there. All right. Now, uh, during this time, of course, you have the development of uh, what is eventually going to be known as scholasticism. Obviously, 
You know what scholasticism is, the schola, the church, uh, I mean school, duch, coming into English as school. The schoolmen, as you would hear the reformers refer to them, were a group of men between the 12th and 14th centuries who wished to make Christian theology defensible according to the rules of logic. And so they wished to organize and systematize so as to destroy all contradictions, make everything, you know, write that systematic theology and we can get to write the last one and nobody will ever have to do this again because we'll have figured it all out and it'll all be logically defensible and we're done. Um, the goal of the schoolman was to validate truth by reason. And so Christianity needed to be something that was entirely reasonable in the sense of reason pointing to all of its various uh, elements. Now, the method of the schoolmen was that they predominantly utilized Aristotelian philosophy, which had come back into Europe at this time primarily through uh, a Muslim uh, by the name of Averroes, an Islamic scholar. Um, he had been rediscovered around the 10th century. His influence upon learned men was tremendous. Greek scholars displaced by attacks uh, from the Muslims fled to Italy. And as I said, Averroes, A-V-E-R-R-O-E-S, translated Aristotle and struggled with the relationship between Aristotle and Islam. Uh, Aristotle, Aristotelian, this is, a, uh, this is a difficult time period within Islam as well. Um, it's interesting that uh, Islamic culture reached a high point. And then what's, what's really interesting is its decline and fall. Uh, a lot of it was due to the rise of the same forms of Islam that give birth to groups like ISIS today. Um, that's why when people say, oh, but you, you, you can't be nice to Muslims because they might just take over the whole world. I'm sorry. Have you looked at the Islamic world? Uh, as soon as they get to a certain percentage uh, of the population, even if, even if they are, you know, in, in what, what happens in places where they are 90% of the population? Uh, well, they, they murder Christians. Yeah, that does happen. But who gets murdered a whole lot more in Muslim countries than Christians? Muslims. They turn on themselves. Uh, there are deep divisions. You know, I, I had two Muslims. I was listening to an hour-and-a-half video that two Muslims put out about me uh, a couple days ago on, on a ride I was doing. And one of the things they, they, they said, one of the criticisms they had was I, had, I once quoted a Shiite source as if it was relevant to true Islam. Well, that tells you where they are. You know, they're, they're Sunni, and so you can't can't quote the Shiites unless you're talking to a Shiite, and then you can't quote the Sunnis, and, and then you've got the Ahmadi, and then you've got the Druze, and you know, you, so on and so forth. And so, uh, hopefully, we all realize the vast majority of Islamic violence in the world today is aimed at Muslims, and um, it's a it's a tragic thing. So, uh, that form of Islam, a very fundamentalistic uh, form, uh, uh, a, what's called the Salafi form of Islam, which today would be called uh, Wahhabism, um, was really a major part in the destruction of what had become a rather high civilization with a lot, you know, Averroes doing Aristotelian philosophy, there was philosophy, there was mathematics, uh, there was a lot of it. And uh, if you do anything in astronomy today, 
uh, last night I, I grabbed my uh, astronomical binoculars. You've, you know, I've got, I've got a scope, got a new scope coming. I can't wait. Um, but I, I, setting up a scope that, that has you know, electronics and stuff like that in it takes some time. You've got to you know, get it out there. You've got to you know, get attached to two different stars so it knows where it is. And then you know, all the rest of the stuff. It takes some time. Didn't have a lot of time, so I've got this set of uh, astronomical binoculars, which you can just plop down and go, yep, there you go. Uh, and uh, I looked at two binary star systems, one that I showed to some uh, brother and sister down here, uh, Alberio. And I know right where Alberio is now, so it's pretty easy to find. I wasn't sure with the light cloud cover last night, but I was able to get to it. And I said, I wonder if I can find Almach. Um, and Almach is a much tighter uh, binary system. It's actually not two stars, it's four. It's really fascinating. The yellow one, you've got a blue one, but the blue one's actually be, being circled by a double. So you've got one, two, three, four. You've got four. You can only see two. Uh, but they're really tight, close together. And I wasn't sure if I could... I had never seen it through my binoculars. I was, I was able to distinguish it. It was like, yay! But notice, Alberio and Almach. What language is that? It's Arabic. Uh, in uh, astronomy, it's either Greek, Arabic, or Latin. Or, in the case of Alberio, it's Arabic badly translated through Greek into Latin or something like that. And it ends up making no sense at all because uh, somebody didn't understand it. But it's what's gotten attached to the name. And once it's there, you're sort of stuck. Um, so... Do I have to... Do I, do I have to... You showed her Almach. So the little diagram of the orbits. Oh, there you go. So thank you very much. But, but your phone isn't big enough to show everybody else. That's the problem. So, uh, yeah, no, no, thank you. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Having some problems once again with uh, the young man down front. Anyways, um, uh, <laughs> so, I, so we got we got to find someone to take care of this guy. That's just all there is to it. So, um, I don't know. Um, so uh, astronomy, mathematics, you know, there had been a, a, a very high civilization, uh, but it didn't, it didn't survive. And it crumbled from within, primarily from uh, this form of Islam that is extremely um, self-destructive. So anyway, uh, so Aristotle comes in and... Uh, through the use of Aristotelian philosophy, deductive logic, um, they would take a verse of scripture, call it a proposition, and then would deduce truths from that. Uh, Aristotelian syllogism, which can have, in some minimal context, can have some value to it, but that's not what John intended his gospel. John did not intend each verse of his gospel to be taken, separated out, and turned into some type of a basis for some syllogistic uh, assertion. Neither did Matthew, neither did Mark, neither did Paul. Uh, you do that to the Psalter, for example, with poetry, and you can come up with almost anything you want. Um, and so the, the schoolmen... Um, very influential, but a lot of the reformers, 
theology and philosophy was actually a reaction against the schoolmen because they were dry and dusty. Dry and dusty would be a nice, a very kind way of putting most of what the schoolmen wrote. It's not that they weren't smart, they were brilliant. They just started at the wrong point. And then you had the discussion of the nature of existence. There were two main schools of thought amongst the schoolmen, realism and nominalism. Realism and nominalism. Realism was based upon Platonic philosophy and the concept of eternal forms. All around us is a reflection of the mind of God. Nominalism said that there are no universals or forms or general categories. Reality is found in the particulars. And so, so uh, realism, you have these forms. You have the ideal table that exists somewhere. And everything else is just simply a shadow of the ideal table. Um, the nominalist, nomina, name, concrete things. And so uh, reality is found in the particulars. They must be verifiable. Uh, so categories of the ideal table that don't, does, doesn't work. Uh, categories just names. Realists tried to prove God existed. Nominalists said you couldn't do it. So if you sort of believe in just general categories of things, and this is just a reflection of that, well, then we should be able to prove God's existence through the reflection of God. But the nominalists said, no, it's in specific. Uh, it's only, it's only, basically, there was sort of the beginning of the materialist that says, you know, if you can't weigh it, uh, analyze it, whatever else doesn't really exist. Rationalism, of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, realism led into mysticism, contemplation almost equal to experience, and when we get down to the next guy, uh, Anselm of Canterbury, he was a realist. And you can see how that impacts his theology. So let's look at some key personalities here real quick. We're actually making some decent progress here. And uh, I wrote too big here. Uh, so we'll, we'll take some of this off here real quick. Some of those great, great names. And let's talk real quickly about Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm of Canterbury, 1033 to 1109. Uh, he became Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093. He had a tremendous influence on medieval thought in the area of the knowledge of God and of the atonement. So, uh, doctrine of God, theology proper, arguments to the existence of God, and the doctrine of the atonement. Now, it's very important that you understand uh, his motto was Credo ut intelligam. Credo ut intelligam. I believe so that I may know. I believe so that I may know. So, in other words, um, belief, acknowledgement of God and God's categories, foundational to human knowledge. Human knowledge must be derivative from God's revelation and God's being. Um, and so, for him, faith is the all-conditioning thing, it comes before knowledge. 
Now, that's going to be uh, contrasted with the next guy we're going to look at, which I'm not sure we'll get to today, but, um, and that is Abelard, who was the canon of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And his uh, credo was intelligo ut credum. I know that I may believe. And uh, so his perspective was much more man-centered um, than, than Anselm's is. And that's going to have a huge difference, uh, you know, impact upon. So something you wish to... What was that guy's name again, the one you just talked about now? Abelard. Abelard? Abelard. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll get to him next. A-B-E-L-A-R-D, Abelard. You just want to go ahead and... Buzz ahead. Uh, go ahead. Fine. Um, why, don't, why don't we just sit here and wait for you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why don't you, please, please tell us uh, tell us about Abelard now. Okay. And besides, there's clearly more that you could tell us from uh, from the net than I have in my notes. So, anyways, um, <laughs> where were we? Oh yes, we were. Moses was in the bold rushes. So, I believe that I may know his um, now. I'm almost tempted, but I'm, I'm, I just think it would be too early in the morning and it would probably ruin everybody's day, uh, even if we did this next week. Um, I'm, I'm almost tempted. Uh, does anybody know, aside from looking at your phone, what argument for the existence of God Anselm is famous for? Anselm is the one that gave us what's called the ontological argument. Now, you've probably heard of the cosmological argument. Um, there are various, you know, Thomas Aquinas put together a whole list of, of the various, and, you know, these, these are the classic schoolman arguments for the existence of God, theistic proofs. I remember taking a philosophy class at, it was Brother Callahan's philosophy class at Phoenix College. And I still have the textbook. I never, I never well, I guess some I did, but I almost never sold my textbooks back. I, how do you get a big library if you sell your textbooks back? And um, so I still have my uh, philosophy textbook. In fact, I've even purchased it since then in Kindle format. Oh my goodness, are those expensive. Um, but I remember eating at the, uh, the old Arby's, it's gone, at 15th Avenue in Camelback. After a class at Phoenix College with that textbook, sitting there reading uh, the presentation of the ontological argument and just trying my darndest to figure out exactly what this argument is, is all about. And honestly, the, the, I think the only way to ever make it through the ontological argument is, is, is at least to Advil before you start. Uh, I, and... Um, uh, some schnapps might help too. To be honest with you, it, it might you know, open your mind up a little bit. I guess. I, 
It is exceptionally difficult. And it's one of those arguments that you sort of feel like you're climbing this mountain and you, you finally get to the top and you, you pull yourself up and I got it. And then you walk out of the restaurant and you sit down in the car and go, oh, I lost it. Because that's about how long it lasts. you know. Um, and you, you just know you could never, ever, 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 ever express this to anybody else. Even for those few seconds where it's like, yeah, I think that might, I think that might work. And then it just, it's like trying to hold on to fog, you know. It just, uh, you, you got it for a second and it's gone. It is extremely difficult. I'll think about it because I actually, I just realized I, since I have that very book on Kindle, and I have Kindle on this unit, I could, we, I could subject you to the horrific experience of trying to figure out the ontological argument. And you know the only reason I would do it is so that you could tell people if it ever came up. Ever heard of Anselm's ontological argument? Oh, yeah. And then move on. <laughs> because you wouldn't, no, you just. But it does give you a almost, it's probably the classical example of the schoolman and scholastic thought. So I'm going to give it some thought. I mean, I've, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. And I'm supposed to be here next week, but it's going to be a really busy week. Uh, I'm going to be gone most of it. And so I don't know, but I'll think about it. I'll think about it because, um, yeah, the, um, the ontological argument is just, wow. But now that I've said all that, you're probably going to go, all right, go ahead. See, what, see how hardy we really are. We can take it. Go ahead and try to drive us crazy. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll... No, but uh, depends on which proposed universe we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so anyways, pretty wild stuff. Anyways, we'll come back to Anselm uh, next time. Uh, we've run out of time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this day, the opportunity of looking back once again, because we ask that that would give us light to look forward. Uh, be with us now as we go into worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.